You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hi, and welcome to The Blackest Questions. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Greer, politics editor for The Griot and associate professor of political science at Fordham University. In this podcast, we ask our guests five of The Blackest Questions so we can learn a little bit more about them and have some fun while we're doing it. We're also going to learn a lot about black history, past and present. So here's the way this works. We have five rounds of questions about us, black history, the whole diaspora, current events, everything. With each round, the questions will get a little bit tougher, and the guest has 15 seconds to get it right. If they answer the question correctly, they will receive one symbolic black fist and hear this. If they get it wrong, they'll hear this. But we'll still love them anyway. And after the five questions, there'll be a black bonus round in the end just for fun. Our guest for this episode is Selma, Alabama native Latasha Brown. She's a community organizer, political strategist, national speaker, writer, and co-founder of Black Voters Matter, a nonprofit dedicated to expanding black voter engagement and increasing progressive power. And when she has the time, she's known to belt out a note here and there. Latasha, I can't thank you enough for joining us on The Blackest Questions. I am so happy to be here. I'm so excited. Um, looking forward, a little nervous because I'm like, you know what? This 51-year-old brain don't work like it used to. <laughs> I've been on television with you. You are one of the sharpest minds. You are one of the sharpest minds and one of the flyest 51-year-olds I've ever seen, Oh, by well, the I'll way. take that. <laughs> you should take it. You should take it all the way to the bank. I think you're ready. It's going to be fantastic. You ready to have some fun? Let's have some fun. Okay, first question. Who was the first African-American woman to serve in Congress and to run for president on a major party ticket? Well, there was an amazing woman named Shirley Chisholm who literally laid the foundation and the work. Matter of fact, she was such an inspiration for me and others. And then it was just, she was just a bad sister. You know, if you know anything about Shirley Chisholm, I want people, whoever's listening to this, they need to go and they need to look at clips of Shirley Chisholm, of as she is talking about her run for Congress, also her run for president. Depending on whether that group voted for me in 1968, I would remind all Americans at this hour of the words of Abraham Lincoln, a house divided cannot stand. I mean, it was actually profound at the moment in which she came out and she ran for president, the, the whole notion of a woman running, nevertheless, a black person running. So yes, Shirley Chisholm and everybody should know that sister's name. Okay, well, that is the correct answer. Shirley Anita St. Hill Chisholm was elected to Congress in 1968, and she ran for the presidency in 72. She was born in Brooklyn. I actually currently, uh, Latasha, live in Shirley Chisholm's old district. She was born on November 30th, 1924, to a father from Guyana and a mother from Barbados, which taps into my book, Black Ethnics, where we talk about sort of black people from the Caribbean and Africa and uh, from the U.S. South. So she graduated cum laude from Brooklyn College in 1946, and she initially worked as a nursery school teacher, and she later got her master's from Columbia University in early childhood education in 1951. This is before she went to Albany uh, to serve as a, as a legislator and then uh, moved on to Congress. So in her awareness of racial and gender inequality, she joined local chapters of community organizations like the NAACP and the Urban League. And in 1964, she became the second black woman in the New York legislature. And she retired from Congress in 1983 and passed away on January 1st, 2005. And so, Latasha, you've already talked about just how brilliant Shirley Chisholm was. 
I'm actually working on a book about Barbara Jordan, uh, and I've obviously come across a lot of research on Shirley Chisholm. Barbara Jordan was the second black woman elected to Congress. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress. Why do you think it's so important to see women who look like us in those roles in Congress? You know, what was so profound about, I think representation matters. I think the fact that um, you see these black women, and these weren't just like black women, they had the look. They carried the power, the spirit, and the legacy of black women's leadership. Um, both of them came out of a space that they were very, um, they were very vocal about the injustice happening to our communities. Both of them, I think what they had in, 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 in common is that they were relentless. They knew that they were up against this white male patriarchy um, infrastructure and as well as the sexism in our own communities. And what we saw in both of their and, and, and both of their races is we saw that element of, 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 of sexism. Shirley Chisholm, quite frankly, um, the black male national leadership never got behind her, right? They were, 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 were not supportive to her. And so so even though she literally was not just a voice of reason, but she literally captured the voices of people who had been marginalized. You know, when you're looking at the work that I, I think why it's really important when we're talking about representation is what we represent. The, the question for, for me is, you know, are you representing a black face or are you representing blackness? And when you represent blackness, that means are you coming to the table with an ideology that is informed by the black experience where you recognize that this, until we actually have, have justice and equity in this country, that we've, we have a responsibility to speak to that. And I think both of those women in their own ways, you had Barbara Jordan, who was a Southern woman from Texas, and you had Shirley Chisholm, who is a Northern woman um, um, from, from New York that at the end of the day, what you saw the commonality is that they loved black people and they loved justice and they used their voice and their skills and gifts to be able to fight for our people. And so representation matters because literally it's me looking at them. I, you know, what's, what's, what's unfortunate is that I was a, a grown up. I was grown before I even knew that Shirley Chisholm had, had ran for, that there had been this black woman that ran for president. I didn't know that, right? Nobody right. taught me that in school. And so all and of those is things. American history. And this, this is an American black, history. This is American history. This is an well, American history. Well, you know what I think history. is so fascinating, Latasha, is that when she ran in 72, and I, I wrote a paper about her and Shirley uh, Mitchell, who ran before Shirley Chisholm on the Communist Party ticket. But, you know, all the black leaders, you know, they assemble in Indiana, for the big conference and they say, you know, we should put up someone black. So she says, here I am. And they're like, ooh, by black, we meant black men, right? And then she goes to the Gloria Steinem's and Bella Asbugs of the world. And they're like, we should put up a woman to run in 72. And Shirley says, well, here I am. And they're like, ooh, by woman, I meant white woman. So she always found herself in this in-between space. But I love the way you use the word relentless because when I hear you talk about Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan, who I see is actually Latasha Brown. Advocating mm -hmm. for marginalized communities and representing black people, not just, you know, in, in a superficial way, but really someone who loves black people. And so I can't thank you enough, A, for the work you do, and B, for joining us here on, on Blackest Questions. Now, you ready for question number two? Come You're on. already one for one. Come on. <laughs> All right, you ready? Let's go. Okay, question number two. In 2018, she became the first African-American woman to be a major party gubernatorial nominee in the United States. Who is this person and what state? Let's say the state of my home state of Georgia. And there's a woman named Stacey Abrams who is at, was leading the ticket in 2018. She's now the nominee again 
2022. So it is the amazing uh, Stacey Abrams. You are correct. Stacey Abrams, born on December 9th, 1973, and raised in Gulfport, Mississippi, before she moved to Georgia. She received degrees from Spelman College, the University of Texas, and Yale Law School. She served in the Georgia House of Representatives from 2007 to 2017. In 2010, she became the first woman to lead either party in the state legislature. She's a New York Times bestselling author, a voting rights activist, an entrepreneur, and a small business owner. And in 2018, she lost her campaign to Brian Kemp. But as you said, uh, Latasha is running again on the Democratic Party line uh, for 2022. Now, have you worked closely with Stacey in some of the voter activism and uh, institution building that you all have, that you've done in Georgia? Oh, we have absolutely supported and, and supported the campaign. The beauty about Stacy is in that same spirit as we talked about with Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan. You know, there's this rich legacy, this through line of black women standing in the space, using our voice, having a vision of how we're going to go forward. Right. And literally organizing our people so we can have a victory. And I think Stacy has done that standing in the space and listening to her, like literally being able to be on the front lines of the voting rights struggle. That is not just mm -hmm. about being elected, but on the voting rights struggle. That is what really inspires me most about her. Now, what do you think can be done differently this time around? Because we know that certain institutional barriers were put in place by the then Secretary of State, who also happened to be her opponent, running on the Republican Party ticket, Brian Kemp. What's different between 2018 and 2022? Uh, are you feeling more or less optimistic uh, because of some of the voting rights struggles that we've seen so evident in Georgia? Well, let me say this. I want to um, I want I want to go back to 2018 just to for to even correct the record in the nation. We won that election. Brian mm, Kemp and the Republicans it. stole that election. At the end talk of the day, there it. were hundreds of thousands of voters, disproportionately black voters that were dropped off the voting rolls. Matter of fact, we did some we filed a suit against the state of Georgia because there were 190,000 voters who had been dropped off the voting rolls because they were at an incorrect address. When in fact, when we did research that none of them, many of them had never even moved. So they were still, many of them had been staying in the same address for 30 years. So they were literally um, uh, dropped off the, for the voting rolls for no reason by a Republican that wanted to have an advantage. So I'll just stay, say that what we did in 2018, we came right back in 2020 and showed the power of organizing and working, um, working in coalition. I think that same thing is going to be required as we move forward. But what I can tell you that is change is that we're in this in political environment where we are seeing white supremacy out front. The Republicans are not, they're saying the quiet part out loud right now. What we're seeing is what we're seeing is a, a, a ban on abortions. You know, that at the end of the day, we have a government to say it's going to regulate a woman's body and her ability to be able to have agency over her body or, and actually having access to health care. Um, uh, we also are in this moment that we're seeing voter suppression immediately people may know or may recall that immediately after the 2020 election we had a senate race in the state of georgia and immediately we had record turnout and as a result of that we saw the next legislative session led by the republicans and the crooked brian kemp who's the governor now that there was an effort there was a bill passed called senate bill 202 that essentially was a voter suppression bill that was enacted in law so now as a voter i have less voter protection now as a voter in the state of Georgia than I had in 2018, as well as
as the millions of other voters. And so there are barriers that have been placed up to make it more difficult and harder. But let me tell you something. We got that fire and we are coming. We are organizing. We're coming stronger. Mm -hmm. When they go low, we go hard. Oh, Latasha, Relentless Brown. I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so thankful for you. Are you ready for question number three? You're on a roll. Let's go. I'm on a roll. Okay, question number three. In 1969, he was the first black athlete to be on a collegiate scholarship at Auburn University. What is his name and what position did he play? Oh, you got me. You got me. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. Auburn. I, ironically, guess where I went to school? <laughs> Where'd you go? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I know. Tell the audience. We know. <laughs> he went to Auburn. He was, okay, repeat the question again. In 1969, he was the first black athlete to be on a collegiate scholarship at Auburn University. What is his name and what position did he play? Well, I know it had to be football because Auburn is all about football. So I know it's football. I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer. It's James Curtis Owens, a.k.a. The Big O. And you the were correct. Big o! He did play football. <laughs> he played running back. And so he was born in 1951 on July 9th in Fairfield, Alabama. He was a highly recruited talent, and he helped integrate the Fairfield High School sporting system. His senior season at Auburn, the team finished the season with a 10-1 record and a top-five national ranking. He was drafted in 1973 to the New Orleans Saints, but was cut in the preseason due to injuries. He went into coaching and became the head football coach at Miles College from 1986 to 1989. And then he went on to become a pastor in Alabama and passed away on March 26th in 2016. So we know here at the Grio that Alabama is a place uh, where you have to pick a side as soon as you're born. So how did you land on Auburn University at Montgomery as a choice for you? You know, part of it was um, proximity and part of it was resources. The bottom line is I had to pay for school myself. And so I went to a place that was close to my home where I would have some support and where what I could afford at the time. You know, given and I think that's why it's so important at, at, at this moment that we still continue to push um, for there to be the elimination of student debt, that many of us had to make really, really difficult choices because we didn't have resources. We didn't come from wealthy families with a trust fund, right? I had to work. I had to work at, at Domino's Pizza in the night, and I think Quince's in the day, and save some money, and then got me a, another gig at the mall in the evening, even though I did get a discount on some shoes. So that was pretty fly, right? <laughs> because you're strategic, that's why. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. So that's that's how I, I landed there. I landed in a space that, quite frankly, um, I had access to and was affordable for me at the time. Mm -hmm. I love how you weave in the real importance of canceling student debt, because to have the freedom of choice is such a powerful tool, especially for black women, uh, to be able to go anywhere that they want and need to go. And obviously the price tag of universities as a college professor I know that the price tag of universities really does limit not just people being able to go where they want to go, but even the majors that they want to to um, major in and what they're interested in. You know, a lot of people want to do a lot more community work, uh, but are worried about debt and loans. And so they actually can't do the real grassroots organizing that they may have wanted to do because they've got crippling debt in some instances. Okay, you ready for question number four? Come on, let's go. Let's go. Okay, we're still hot. Don't worry about it. We're still okay, hot. Okay, come on. Let's come on. <laughs> Question number four. These two civil rights activists and friends both died July 17th, 2020. 
One was the first African-American lawmaker to lay in state in the Capitol Rotunda, and the other was the first non-elected black person to lie in state at the Georgia State Capitol. Who were these two? Well, one of them happened to be my mentor, um, and I miss him desperately. Uh, actually, I'm getting fooled thinking about him right now. Reverend C.T. Vivian. Mm -hmm. and John Lewis. They died on July 17th, which happened to be my mother's birthday. It was a very challenging um, a moment um, for me. Um, Reverend C.T. Vivian, I, I can just tell you out of firsthand experience, I've never met another person in my life like him. Just, I remember, you know, sitting one day, I went to his home and I, I literally was sitting at his feet and I felt like, I felt like I was in the presence of a prophet, you know, and um, just his belief around black, people and love and our ability. And I remember one day he said something really profound to me. He said, you know, he, he had been offered this job in an ink factory and his wife was pregnant and he had this, he, he wanted to go get this job at this ink factory because at the time he was a preacher and he's in the movement, but the movement ain't wasn't paying. Right. And so he was like, I, I got, I got a baby coming. And his wife, you know, his wife was like, no, this is your calling. And his wife encouraged him to stay with the movement. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? If I had done that, he said, I, I, he said, I would have missed my life. And that has been so profound to me, even as I do my work. Now I'm constantly thinking and making decisions, not based on, okay, that has the best financial um, a benefit for me, or that has the best um, I, uh, uh, opportunity to position me, but I'm looking at, how can I make sure I'm making decisions that I don't miss my life, that I don't miss the life that I that was created for me, the path that was created for me of my purpose, of tapping into my purpose? And so the answer is I'm very, 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 very 99.9999 sure that it is Representative John Lewis, who is also from the state of Alabama. That lets you know, Christina, we got some goodness come out of Alabama. There is something in the water in Alabama, and you are absolutely correct. Representative John Lewis was a longtime civil rights activist and politician serving as a member of the House of Representatives from the state of Georgia from 1987 through 2020. Uh, and he's known for causing good trouble through activism. And so he was 80 years old. And then Reverend C.T. Vivian was a community organizer, minister, author, served with Martin Luther King, and mentor to Latasha Brown, which obviously explains a lot of your work and who you are. And both Lewis and Vivian participated in the Freedom Rides, and both received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from then-President Barack Obama. And so I, I, I definitely felt your energy when you were talking about uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian. So how closely did you work with either of them uh, in when you were starting out and then sort of as you've really built this foundation in the state of Georgia? Did you check back in? I mean, it's always so interesting when mentor-mentee roles. I mean, the great thing is, is that Reverend Vivian got to see who you became, yes. right? Yes. I'm sure it's like yes. at one point she was little Latasha, and now he yes. sees this woman leading the nation and how we articulate injustice, how we articulate what's going on with black women, how we articulate what's going on with voting rights. I mean, how does that make you feel to know that they got to see you actually flourish? These are seeds they planted. You know, I learned so much from um, both of them. I worked more closely. I worked on some level uh, with both of them around voting rights and um, and, and youth leadership. We actually, are, we used to run a youth leadership camp in, in Selma and they would come um, almost every year for the Jubilee Festival, which was the Selma Montgomery March. And so um, 
But Reverend Vivian, I spent a lot of time with he and another civil rights leader named Reverend James Orange, who was also a part of that network, um, who, and they would feed in, they would just feed into me and pour into us kind of knowledge and experience and the stories. But I will say this one particular time, you know, I, as I, I never would call myself an activist. I thought it was arrogant to call yourself an activist. I, I felt like the community, that was like a title that I felt like the community should give you. You don't just go around and say you're an activist. You do the work in the community to let you know if you're an activist or not, right? And so I remember, and I had that same kind of feeling around an organizer. I, I organized, but when I looked at folks from the civil rights movement, and many of them I met and would listen to and knew, um, I never thought of myself in that same category. I was like, yeah, I'm a baby organizer. Y'all the real deal, Holyfield, right? And so one day, this was right after Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, I had done a whole lot of work helping to organize a uh, uh, effort down there, a movie called Saving Ourselves Coalition. And I was in New Orleans and it was one of those days that I was just feeling, you know, the 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 request, it was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed with requests that even though we were doing a whole lot of work, you know, sometimes as an organizer, you don't know if you're making impact. I, I, I was like, it's just, I can't never catch up. I won't ever be able to address all of this. And Reverend Vivian walked in, we were at this, ho at this hotel gathering um, and he walked in and he said, my sister, my sister, you are an organizer. And that was it. Like from that day forward, there is, I felt like I had earned the title of I am an organizer. And from that day forward, and when I introduced myself, more than introducing my founder of organizations, more than any of the other things, right? It is so much pride and power when I say I am Latasha Brown and I am an organizer. Uh, and you know how I know? Because C.T. Vivian told me so. Because <laughs> C.T. Vivian told me so. Oh, my goodness. You, you are an inspiration and you're on a roll. So I think we should just keep going into question number five. Organizer Latasha Brown is here with us in The Blackest Questions. If you're just tuning in. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Last big question. And then we'll go into the bonus round. This black woman delivered a speech on December 20th, 1964, where she declared, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. Who was she and who did she deliver the speech with? This the light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That is the favorite song of who my shero is, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was from Mississippi. She represented the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Freedom Democratic Party, um, and was an amazing sister who, at the end of the day, what we, what, for people to know, even in that speech, it was so profound that the president in the in in the midst of her um, while she was going to speak on the floor of the Democratic convention, the the president was so afraid that she was uh, the country would hear her. Now, this is a woman who was a sharecropper, had been a sharecropper that he actually cut in um, during that time and actually had a um, did a speech himself um, so that they would he would divert people from her. That's right. He was, and you know, and I'm a huge fan of LBJ in a lot of different ways because he helped usher through the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Immigration Act. But when you think about how he was so afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer 
this former, you know, childish sharecroppers. And so you are correct. The answer is Fannie Lou Hamer. And she was giving that speech with Malcolm X. And so she delivered the speech at a rally at the Williams Institutional CME Church in Harlem, New York. That 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen. Hamer was born in Montgomery County, Mississippi on October 6, 1917. She was a civil rights activist on the front lines of the fight for voting rights for African Americans, and she often doesn't get the credit that she rightfully deserves. She passed away from breast cancer on March 14, 1977, when she was only 59 years old. Now, Latasha, I'm actually working on slash finishing up a book on Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Hamer, and Stacey Abrams. And so I'm thinking about these strong black women from the South who did insider and outsider politics. Um, but when you think of Han Fannie Lou Hamer, how does she specifically impact your work? You know, I am, a, a, as, as you talked about earlier, I'm from Alabama, I'm from the deep South. So here is a woman um, from the deep South that knew that there was fire in her voice. You know, she knew that there was power in her voice and she knew that her agency didn't come from her title. It didn't come from where she grew up. It didn't come from whether she had money or not, that she had a certain kind of wit and wisdom that was that she was born with and that she had agency to be able to utilize that. And so for me, the way that she asserted and affirmed her own humanity and fought for the humanities of, of, of others, right? Like there's some of us and there's some people that get caught up in, you know, um, they, they feel they have to be validated by where they went to school. They have to be validated around what their titles are. They have to be validated around, you know, where they worked or how much money they had. This sister had none of that, right? This sister did not have any money. Matter of fact, when she started registering people to vote, she got kicked off. She and her husband um, got kicked off of the plantation that they had been sharecroppers on. This was a woman who had been beaten, if you re if people go and read the story, had been viciously beaten when she was actually placed in jail, unrighteously placed in jail, and had problems for the rest of her life, and even had a limp um, where she had been damaged, yet she continued to persist and do the work. This is a woman that even the men, even though you know we don't talk about this story, but even the men in the civil rights movement didn't think, some of them didn't think that she was polished enough, that she was, was, was framed enough, that that literally at the end of the day, whether she said that is or that ain't, that at the end of the day, she knew there was power and truth and she stood in that. And so the thing that if, if there were um, something that so I loved about this sister is the way that she embraced her humanity and she did not allow the world to tell her that she was less than anything than what God created her. You know, the other part about her story that I think often gets kind of overlooked is that she was, had a beautiful relationship with her husband. If you look at, if you read some of the, of her work, she was actually a major proponent for black love around family. She felt like that black folk that deserved to be loved and that even in the midst of all she was going through, she had this brother that, that was a sharecropper with her that didn't have a lot, just like she didn't have a lot. And that, but, but together they could do this thing. And so there was something really profound about a woman who actually could sit in this space that at the end of the day, she didn't feel like she needed anything else to validate her other than her humanity. And so that in itself, for no other reason, that is why I love that sister. Ah. Uh. 
Thank you so much. And you know, uh, once I finish this book, <laughs> I will be sure uh, to send you a copy. You know, I talk, you mentioned Roe v. Wade and the decision from the Supreme Court the other day. You know, in addition to all the work that Fannie Lou Hamer did and all the abuse she endured, she also endured what they called a Mississippi appendectomy. She's one of the thousands of black women and native women who were forcibly sterilized during her, you know, during a routine operation. And so uh, what she did for us as black people, black women, especially what she did for this country, uh, we can never thank her enough for. Uh, okay, Latasha, I think you were fantastic. I think we learned a ton. Um, I know our listeners loved hearing about uh, your relationship with Reverend C.T. Vivian. I just, I'm going to have to go and replay this episode. But are you ready for some <laughs> black bonus round? Oh, come on. Let's go on the bon bonus round. Let's let's get it. Let's get it. Let's strike with Iron Time. Now, these are just quick, quick fire. You ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. First one. Raising Cane's or Zaxby's? Zaxby's. Southwest or Delta? Delta. Are you up what the you street mean? or down the road? I am up the street on the hill. <laughs> <laughs> Luther Vandross or Barry White? Oh, Luther. <laughs> if you could rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge, who would you rename it after? It would be the People's Bridge. Okay, last one. Better voice, Mahalia Jackson or Ella Fitzgerald? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. So... <laughs> That's a tough one for different reasons. It's a tough. Ella Fitzgerald had perfect pitch. I'm a singer, so I like appreciate them both differently. And I don't, you know, I'm always in this like, do you compare the voices? Mahalia Jackson just had the kind of soul and the spirit that if you would hear her sing, she made the hair stand up on your body, right? But Ella Fitzgerald had perfect pitch, right? Which is like. It's thousands of people, like twenty, like it, it's crazy. So, oh, okay, Mahalia, y'all gotta go with Mahalia, y'all gotta go with Mahalia. Okay, you gotta go with Mahalia. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, promise us you will come back to the Blackest Questions, Natasha Brown. Absolutely. Oh, this was so much fun. All right, oh, this was fun. Good. Thank you so much. So this is Latasha Relentless Brown. I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to The Blackest Questions. The show is produced by Cameron Blackwell and Camille Cruz. If you like what you heard, please download the Grio app and listen and watch many more great shows and share it with everyone you know. Don't forget, you can listen to the Grio's Writing Black podcast hosted by me, Maisha Kai. This isn't your typical writing podcast. We interview any and everybody that has anything to do with writing, from comics to poets to authors to journalists to politicians and more. Remember, that's Writing Black every Sunday right here on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. Download the Griot's app to listen to Writing Black wherever you are. <laughs>